Now let's turn in our Bibles again to the first chapter of the Gospel according to John, John's Gospel, chapter 1. If you're using a church Bible, you'll find the passages on page 1063, 1063. We have had several series going on recently in the church, uh, Romans, Ephesians, John's Gospel, prologue to John's Gospel. Uh, this is the fourth of those series. If you're just wondering exactly where we are and it comes to an end today. Let's read John chapter 1, first four verses and then from verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, that is John the Baptist, bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Now, by a kind of providential happenstance, uh, a sermon that was intended to introduce a series on John's Gospel dealing with the prologue kind of turned into a series of eight or nine sermons on its own on Sunday evenings. And I have begun to fear that the Sunday evening congregation may think they're becoming weary of the prologue to John's gospel when they're actually just becoming weary of my preaching on the prologue to John's gospel. But it is, as uh, although we've just been scraping the surface of it, it is undoubtedly uh, one of the most profound if not the most profound passage in the whole of the New Testament. This is actually the fourth sermon on John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glory as of the only Son, full of grace and truth, full of grace and truth. This, I venture to say, is the greatest verse in the prologue, the greatest verse in John's gospel, the greatest verse in the New Testament, the greatest verse in the Bible. Genesis 1.1 is a great verse, God made all things out of nothing. But it is greater that the one who made all things out of nothing became part of that world, entered that world which He Himself had created. 
and that being the case, there is a kind of inevitability about the resurrection. It was impossible that death would keep the Son of God down. And because He came into the world for salvation, there is a kind of inevitability about Him returning at the end of time to bring about the final regeneration of all things. And we're looking this morning at what is the greatest statement in the greatest text, in the greatest paragraph in all the Bible. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us, we beheld His glory, and what we saw was that He was full of grace and truth. And that is obviously so important to John that he repeats the idea, you'll notice it again in verse 16, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And again in verse 17, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So from John's point of view, from the New Testament's point of view, the most important thing we need to know about Jesus Christ the way you and I need to think about Jesus Christ, the first way, the big way, is that He is full of grace and truth. And as I say, this is so important to John that he actually repeats it, not only once, but twice. Jesus is full of grace. And there's a fairly obvious reason for that emphasis. He wouldn't emphasize it if he didn't think we doubted it. He wouldn't emphasize it if he didn't know, presumably in his old age, that many Christians find this difficult to grasp, that perhaps most Christians often live as though it were not true, that Jesus is not only grace and truth, but that Jesus is full of grace and truth, and that it's possible from that fullness to receive that grace. Because, of course, when we grasp this, or better, are grasped by it, there is a sense in which nothing that ever happens to us will really dent our confidence in the gospel nothing that ever happens to us will sink us because we know that Jesus is full of grace and truth. And in a sense, these are our two greatest needs. We are sinners in need of grace, and we live in a world, as we're constantly being told today, of falsehood, and we need to know the truth and the marvelous thing that John is saying that bypasses the world in which we live in its secularism is that grace and truth are a person. And if you want to find grace and know truth, then you need to understand that they are both embodied in a person. And your quest must therefore end in the terminal point of a person. Of course, we live in a world of constantly changing ideologies and philosophies 
that can therefore, by definition, never come to the foundation stone of reality because they look for truth in an impersonal way. They look for grace in a subjective way, and they do not find it where alone it is to be found in Jesus Christ. So, this is a huge statement that John is making here at the climax of these wonderful verses in his prologue. And I think, first of all, what we need is an explanation of what he's saying. And John seems to understand this. It's often good when we're trying to explain something to somebody that we we give them a comparison. We say this to children, don't we? We're explaining something to them. We say, it's, it, well, think about this. And John explains by giving us a comparison. He says, look at it this way. He says, verse 17, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You know, if you ever hear a preacher using an illustration, and then he's got to explain the illustration, you realize he should never have been using the illustration. And you might think the same thing about John. If this is an explanation, then it sounds as though it needs an explanation, which is probably only because we don't belong to John's culture. If you belong to John's culture, it would have been crystal clear what John was saying here when he says, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Does that mean there's no grace and no truth in the law? Actually, some Christians erroneously have thought that, as though the God of the Old Testament were different from the God of the New Testament, as though there was no grace or truth in law. But the law of God begins with grace, doesn't it? It's actually the first sentence in the law of God. It's all about God's grace. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That's grace. And what follows is the truth. As you read through Jesus' teaching, through the teaching of the New Testament, it comes clear that there is grace in the old covenant through Moses, and there is truth in the old covenant through Moses, but not ultimate grace, not ultimate truth. The author of Hebrews gives us a, a couple of really helpful statements. He says, you know, in the past days, God revealed Himself in fragmentary ways through the prophets. But now He's shown us Himself in His Son. The Old Testament is like like bits of the picture, but in Jesus Christ we see the whole picture. Remember these old quiz shows that used to be on STV? Do you recognize this place? You know, and you would get a bit of water 
You know, and you, you know, if you were some kind of travel genius, you might recognize that was Loch Lomond, but you didn't get it, then another bit, and then another bit, and then eventually, oh, now, obviously, it's Loch Lomond, or, or uh, what's that sports quiz? You know, you see his nose. Who is he? Well, a nose is a nose, and then you see some eyes, and then, slow. oh, now I see it. Should have recognized that. And the relationship between God's revelation in the old and God's revelation in Jesus Christ is like that. In the old, you got bits of the picture. In the new, you get the whole picture. Later on, in Hebrews 9 and 10, the author puts it like this. He, he says, the Old Testament gives you shadows. In Jesus Christ, you get the substance, the true, the ultimate, the real. So, there are pictures of God's grace. There are sacrifices. There are pointers to God's grace. There are, there are these strange figures that emerge. The Son of Man, described in Daniel 7. The Suffering Servant, described in Isaiah 53. And even the people who speak about them are left scratching their heads and saying, we have some sense that someone is going to come who will show us God in His fullness of grace to us. We just don't know who He is or when He's coming. And John, the gospel writer, has reminded us of how John the Baptist, you see, who knew one of these Old Testament pictures, the Lamb of God that would take away sin, and the lambs had been sacrificed again and again and again and again and again, and so people knew these can't be taking away sins. And so he points to Jesus and he says, this is the Lamb of God, and He will take away the sins of the world. And this is what John is saying to us here. There is a, there is a comparison to help us. And in a sense, it's only when we go back to thinking about the fragments and the shadows that the privileges that we have as Christian believers dawn upon us now that in Jesus Christ there is this fullness of grace and truth. Actually, the background, the, the language background, the concept background to what he's saying here is that amazing event when in Exodus 33, Moses said to God, God, show me your glory. Please show me your glory. And God said to him, I can't show you my glory, and you still live it would kill you. You cannot see my face and live. You can't. And so he's there in the cleft of the rock, and, and he's allowed to see, as it were, the God's back as he passes by, speaks about his goodness and grace. So, you see what John is saying? Moses only saw the back but in Jesus, what do we see? We see in Jesus, John 1, 1, we see the one who was in the beginning face to face with God. And John 1, 14, the one who is face to face with God has, as it were, entered into our world and become face to face with us. And we see the glory of God in the only possible way we could see it and still live. That is to say, when it appears in 
flesh and blood, and, and we see it in Jesus Christ. And you see what do you see what John is saying? He's saying, do you know how to spell glory? Do you know how to spell God's glory? You spell it G-R-A-C-E. And if you don't see that, if you can't see that, then you're still in a position where you've not really come to know God because the place in which we come to know God is the person of the Lord Jesus. So, there's explanation of what he's saying. He is full of grace and truth. But then he adds something. There's not only explanation, there's reception. He goes on to say, look marvelously, verse 16, from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Now, I'm not sure what's in the NIV that the church uses. It's different in the latest edition of the NIV. Got all kinds of translations of this expression, grace upon grace, grace instead of grace, grace in place of grace, fullness of grace. And the reason is because nobody's very sure how you translate the rather strange language that's used. The, 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 the language is grace. We've all received grace instead of grace. Think about it this way. If uh, Hugh had stood up and said, um, David Robertson's not preaching this morning, instead, Sinclair Ferguson's preaching, well, you might have a different views of that, but it wouldn't have seemed kind of strange use of language. But if he'd said, instead of David Robertson preaching, David Robertson is preaching instead of David Robertson. You know, that's odd. But that's exactly the kind of thing that John is saying. We've all received from His fullness, and instead of grace, we get grace. shouldn't be surprising why people are not sure what John means here. He probably means one of two things. There was grace in the days of Moses when the law came. There were these sacrifices. There were these promises. There were all these blessings that God's people… But now, now we've got grace big time. Or as I rather uh, tend to think, and to be honest, I'd rather this is what it meant, but I do think this is what it means, that when you come to know Jesus Christ, you receive grace instead of grace, instead of grace, instead of grace, instead of grace. What do I mean by that? Uh, I don't counsel it today, but you go out into the water and you stand and the waves come in and there is wave instead of wave, instead of wave, instead of wave. And on and on it goes until if you start thinking about that, I pretty much guarantee there will come a point when you're standing there in the waves and you say, I can't take thinking about this anymore. I cannot take it in that this 
is going to go on forever and ever. And that in place of one wave, there is another wave and another wave. And I think John is saying, dear ones, you need to learn to think about Jesus Christ in this way. When we come to trust Him, what we receive from Him is wave upon wave upon wave upon wave of grace. Think about it this way. John the Baptist, who baptized Jesus, had been baptizing sinners in the River Jordan. Think of the water that had been poured over these, these sinners that in a sense symbolically had washed their sins into the River Jordan. And then Jesus appears, and He says to John, baptize me with this water. And John says, that's all wrong. I should be baptized by you. I'm a sinner. You don't need this baptism. And Jesus says, no, I need this baptism symbolically. And I want you to pick up that water that's symbolically full of the sins of all these people. Pour it over me so that the water that's been poured over them may cleanse, bring pardon as they trust in me. Or think about it this way. You know the story of Hosea in the Old Testament marrying a woman who committed adultery and then going to her again. Just think of that picture of of Gomer who has wasted her life, despised the marriage bond, committed adultery, given herself falsely to others, and Hosea comes along and says, I still love you. And he keeps saying it, and it keeps breaking her heart. She says, please stop saying that. Please stop. I cannot take you saying to me, I forgive you. I love you. I forgive you. I love you. I forgive you. I love you. Until she's drowned in the forgiveness. And according to the Scriptures, we're all in that situation, aren't we? We're, we're all in that. Jesus says, you're all in that situation. We are, we are adulterers. We are thieves. We are covetous. We've committed idolatry. We've chased other gods. We've lusted in our hearts. And we're standing there before Jesus, and wave upon wave upon wave upon wave of grace is pouring over us, pardon is pouring over us, till it breaks our hearts. We can't take it anymore. We say, Lord, I can't, I can't hold all this forgiveness You're offering to me. He says, no, there, there needs to be more because the more you taste this grace, the more you're going to discover it. it. It gets down into the deep places of your soul, and you discover there are yet hidden realms of sin where you need to ask for my pardon and forgiveness. And you say, Lord, can you just assure me that when you get to the bottom, you'll never stop pouring out your grace upon me? And that's what John had discovered. He discovered in Jesus grace upon grace upon grace. Here's an interesting thing for some of us anyway. Don't you think John was one of the really best of the apostles? 
didn't seem to mess up quite the same way Simon Peter did. Didn't betray or deny Jesus. Isn't a kind of bit figure in the whole story. This is the man who realizes this is what we need because he knew this is what he needed from Jesus. And if that's true, it's true for me, for you. For those we think as the best of us. And amazing in a, in a gospel-centered church we can think that way, that so-and-so doesn't need as much forgiveness as I do because they've been sorry enough or they've, they've kind of balanced off their sin with the good things they've done. It's not, it's not possible. This is why you see grace is, is, grace is the ultimate obstacle to you if you're not a Christian because you still want to do it yourself. We've been celebrating Martin Luther. At Martin Luther's time, there were two ways you were taught you could be saved. One was this, if you did enough, if you cooperated with God enough to be acceptable in His sight. And the other way was, if you could be sorry enough, if I can only be sorry enough for my sins, could my tears forever flow all for sin could not atone. Thou must save. Thou alone. Can I put it this way to you? Who do you think you're kidding? You're not kidding him. As the waves of grace roll towards you, you're not even kidding yourself when you say, you know, I'm really the exception. I don't need this. But listen, you see, one of the things that's true of so many people when, it, when, when their hearts are revealed is that they can hardly believe this is true. Is this why John says he's full of grace and truth? It's as though he's saying he's full of grace and dear one, it's true. It really is true. And all we need to do is to is to come with our empty hands to His fullness and receive from His fullness. So, there's explanation. Yes, there's explanation. And yes, there's reception. There's reception. And then John adds just a little third thing with which we can finish. There's illumination. Verse 18 no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at Father's side. He has made Him known. You see what he's saying? He's saying that when you see Jesus, you know what the Father is like. Now, that's very important to some of us because some of us have a deep-seated suspicion of the Father for whatever reason. I've known people who have said to me, I cannot think of God as my heavenly Father because of the way I think about my earthly Father. How are you going to resolve that problem? Well, here John resolves it for you. He says, Jesus, the only Son of the Father who is in the bosom of the Father. That's the, exactly the language that's used of, in John 13 of John 
the author leaning back into the bosom of Jesus as they reclined at table. John as Jesus' bosom friend. Intimate. He's saying, you know, when you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. Friend Derek Thomas puts it this way. You need to know there is nothing un-Jesus-like in the Father. He has, in my version, made him known, those of you who are sitting there with your hidden Greek New Testaments, which are not a few in this congregation, uh, you know that this is the verb from which we get the word exegesis, isn't it? You know, when you're told to exegete a passage, you're supposed to bring out its meaning and say, look, look, this is, this is what it says, this is what it means. And, and John is saying, Jesus is the exegesis of the Father. If you want to know who He is, then look at Jesus. Remember how Philip says, Jesus, if you just show us the Father, then we'll be satisfied. John 14, and Jesus says, listen, Philip, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When you've seen me, you've seen the glory of God. When you've seen me, oh, this is a marvelous thing. When you've seen me, you have seen perfect, final, full, sufficient, adequate grace for all of your sins. You know that hymn of Wesley? We might call it a new hymn here, but it's actually an old hymn. O Jesus, full of truth and grace, more full of grace than I have sinned. Paul, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. And uh, that's John's Jesus. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, I don't know whether this is Sermon 8 or 9 or 10 on these 18 verses, and we have been scraping the surface from them. Oh, my friends, if this is the surface, what must the ocean of grace be like? You're coming to Him, to Jesus, full of pardoning grace, more full of grace than I am of sins. Can that be possible? Can it be possible that I keep saying to him, but there's more sin, there's more sin, there's more sin, there's more sin, until you know what it's like when you stand and the waves are beating in, that you, there's more sin, there's more sin, and then the sound of the waves begins to drown your ability to say there's more sin, and then the wave washes over you, and you're left speechless. That's how it is. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw in Jesus Christ the glory of God. And the glory of God, oh, we were so afraid of the glory of God, it would kill us. But then when we saw it in Him, it was grace upon grace upon grace. He's the one you need. He is the one you need. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You.
for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, although He was rich for our sakes, became poor, that through His poverty we might become rich. Lord, we, we are ashamed that we have, we have tried to do deals with You, or we've assumed that we have enough resources on our own, or thought if we could just be more sorry for our sins, all would be well. We pray Your grace may pour out upon us in and through Jesus Christ, and that we may know, oh, that we may know today that we cannot possibly be more pardoned than we are now, that we could not possibly be more loved than we are now, and that we can never learn more about You as our Heavenly Father than we see in the reflection of Your face in His face, full of grace and truth. Lord, we pray that the Lord Jesus will reach into each of our lives. We're so different from one another. Our needs are so different. The shape of our sins so personal, the circumstances of our lives, and help us to see in the face of the Lord Jesus that His grace is sufficient for all of our needs, and He is able to save us to the uttermost when we come to You through Him. Hear us and seal Your Word in our hearts, we pray for His sake.